Hello and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. And if you are paying attention, I have talked about immigration and matters related to immigration a bit in the past. And I'm very pleased today to have on, on the line with me a, a very good friend of mine, Sean McQuaw, who has spent 20 years as a national security analyst for the government of Canada, in addition to six years in the infantry reserve. And and I'm this is the cool part about this is that Sean is somebody a rather rare beast in in my uh, sort of way of looking at things here in Canada. He is the author of a book of fiction we're going to talk about. So Sean, welcome to the podcast. Bill, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. So you are an author, and the name of your book is called Eastern Horizons. Why don't you walk through my audience uh, what this book is all about? So uh, the book is uh, based upon a nuclear war between two superpowers in Asia. And the West in Europe is not directly impacted by the war. Um, although, as you can imagine, there's significant environmental and economic damage that's brought to the world with uh, with several countries being destroyed. I've read somewhere uh, that, that nuclear war doesn't have it doesn't it doesn't it respect borders. It, it has an impact well beyond that. Indeed, and I put a lot of research into that, and, and uh, it's a relatively limited war in as much as uh, in total I have about uh, 520 nuclear weapons being detonated, and that would generate about, uh, what is it, 10 tetragrams of ash going into the stratosphere, and uh, a lot of the science behind the environmental damage is, is, as far as I can understand, pretty accurate. I put a lot of work into that. One of the impacts of this war was to create uh, what I call a tsunami of refugees because um, because a conventional war preceded the nuclear war, people did have a chance to get out of the cities. Although several million people were killed, there was also several hundred million people who were displaced. And over the course of the next several months, many of them, a couple of years rather, many of them started to show up in boats off the coast of British Columbia looking for asylum. Um, and then the question that I put to the reader is, okay, Canada, and traditionally welcome refugees, but how would we welcome 4 million refugees at a time that there's not enough food to eat and the economy is in freefall? So in other words, the in the aftermath of this nuclear war, as you said, there have been some very well-documented environmental after effects in terms of darkness, in terms of food production. And as you say, Canada, which is a nation that in a, you know normally takes about 300,000 refugees or immigrants per year, uh, about one percent of the population. Now we have four million showing up on the doorstep. So, so what happens next? Basically, uh, the country goes through a bit of an existential crisis. There's a raise, of, there's a rise of the political right. Um, just by coincidence, the war happens in an election year. Kind of a of a, a Trump esque figure from the right arises uh, to try and capture the the fear that is gripping the country in the aftermath of this war and in the face of this immigration. Wait, you're um, saying that Canada can produce a Trump like figure? Please tell me that's not true. Well, I think if we look at Europe, we see that lots of countries are capable of producing uh, populist leaders and, and uh, fear is the fuel for that kind of a fire. Um, so a lot of this book is ultimately about fear can grip the masses. And um, the subtitle of the book is actually Failure and Redemption, a tale, a tale of Failure and Redemption. That's because in my analysis of the book, the, the one of the characters of the book is Canada, but there's also some human characters in it. There's two naval officers from the Royal Canadian Navy. Uh, and everybody kind of goes through their own failure in the aftermath of the war. And the rest of the book is about everybody seeking redemption for that. And uh, the two naval officers, well, there's a family of uh, Malaysian refugees that I profile. 
as they try to seek safety in Canada from uh, what I call an echo war from the original war uh, in Asia. And, and uh, as you can see, primary conflicts often spur secondary conflicts, have a secondary conflict happening in Southeast Asia, which is the Malaysian Civil War. And that's the Malaysian refugee family that I pick up and carry through the, through the narrative. Interesting. So obviously this is in some ways historically accurate because I'm no historian, but I do know that wars that are that break out wherever end up causing refugee flows. And, you know, there's conflict that makes people basically have to they have to leave to, to save themselves and their families from being in the wrong place at the wrong time. We certainly saw that in Syria in the past couple of years. Are there any parallels between what you wrote and the Lebanese crisis that we faced a couple of years ago, where all of a sudden all these people that were in Lebanon who may or may not have had legitimate access to Canada, either through families were seeking to to come to Canada. And if memory serves me correct, Sean, there was a huge effort made by the Canadian government to try to vet these people who wanted to come to Canada to, to basically get the hell out of Dodge before the situation in the country got any worse. Absolutely. I was definitely informed in my thinking about the, uh, the 2006 Israeli-Lebanon war. Uh, at the time of that war broke out in, in the latter half of 2006, there were approximately 40,000 uh, Canadian citizens in Lebanon, uh, overwhelming majority of which were dual citizens. Um, and this was the conflict that spurned the term uh, Canadians of convenience. Mm. A lot of these people, when the war broke out, uh, as you said, rightly or wrongly, sought shelter and, and went to the Canadian embassy and said, can you please get us out? Ultimately, the government of Canada evacuated 15,000 people out of Lebanon in relatively short order uh, in July, August, and September of that year. And this was a multi-agency undertaking that was, was really quite a, a significant deployment from the Canadian uh, government. Previous to the war in Lebanon, the largest evacuation the government of Canada had undertaken was 500 people after the 2004 tsunami in Southeast Asia. Wow. This was 15,000 people. Are, are um, you surprised that Looking back, uh, you know, w- you know, we Canadians see ourselves as tolerant, as welcoming. Uh, were you surprised that there were voices that were calling these people sort of Canadians of convenience for whom we shouldn't go to Herculean efforts to rescue them? Or is that something that is sort of a natural outpouring of an extreme situation like that and one that's reflected in your book? I don't think I was surprised by it. I, I think I was probably disappointed by it. Um but, uh, you know, the Citizenship, citizenship Act at the time granted citizenship in perpetuity down the line. So a Canadian citizen, um, whether naturally born or naturalized, that had children would become Canadian citizens. Their children would become Canadian citizens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down the line in perpetuity. Um, so the, after the uh, Lebanon crisis, there were amendments made to the Citizenship Act, uh, Bill C-37, cease that and basically said that only first-generation Canadians can pass on their uh, citizenship at birth. Um, I think there was a lot of backlash from this. The evacuation costs about $95 million. And there is some indications, some reporting, um, isn't backed up by government figures, but in the media that suggested that within a month of the evacuation, 7,000 of the 15,000 people that have been evacuated had already gone back to Lebanon. I did think it created some hard feelings amongst limits the Canadian population. Well, as it would, right? If we spend all this money to get you here and then you immediately turn and go back. You know, listening to you, Sean, it brought back a very distinct memory for me. Before I joined a communication security establishment way back in 1983, I was working as a, a student translator over in Gatineau. It was called Hull back then. I was doing Spanish doing English translation. And the one thing they gave to all the newbies, the students like me, was I'm not making this up. 
Mexican Mennonite birth certificates. And what had happened was that there was this time period in which a whole bunch of people uh, from sort of Western Canada, Alberta, Saskatchewan, who happened to be Mennonite, end up back in Mexico. They migrated for a whole host of reasons. And the the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren were seeking some kind of Canadian status. Uh, They're still in Mexico. So I spent my time uh, translating birth certificates written by very uh, uneducated uh, parish priests in middle of nowhere, Mexico, trying to transcribe German Mennonite last names into Spanish. It, it was quite hilarious. So I think, as you said, uh, there was some sort of animosity and, and some acrimony when Canadians realized that we went through all this effort, spent all this money to save you people, and then you turned around and went back as soon as you could, which in some ways is natural, right? I mean, I mean Lebanon was their home. It's not as if we would, should have expected them to, well, we've, we've brought you here. You have no choice but to remain. Of course, in Canada, we have the constitutional right to, well, notwithstanding the current restrictions on interprovincial boundary movements, we're supposed to have the constitutional right to go wherever we want to go. And, and certainly we have the constitutional right to leave the country and to return to the country. Um, so I certainly don't fault any of the, uh, the dual citizens or the Canadian citizens who were in Lebanon at the time. They were well within their rights to seek uh, redress from the government of Canada. They were not a believer at all in dual citizens, or not dual citizens, but, but second-class citizens, first-class citizens. Like, if you're a Canadian citizen, you're a Canadian citizen. Point for now. You just said something very interesting, and I want to take this in a slightly different direction, and I apologize for this. You know, under the Charter, Canadians have a right to travel, uh, and they have a right to return. I remember getting into a debate about a year and a half ago at a, at a conference whereby, and this was about the whole foreign, it wasn't really about foreign fighters, but it was sort of uh, tangential to that. This person basically argued that the, the charter right for Canadians to travel implied that the security services like CSIS and the RCMP had no right to prevent Canadians from traveling to join terrorist groups like ISIS. And then they also threw in some kind of 17th century John Locke principles of basic human rights kind of thing. What do you think are some legitimate limits on those types of rights? Does Canada have the right, and I I would argue the obligation, to prevent its citizens from leaving this country to go join, let's say, a terrorist group in the Middle East or, or, or in Asia? I think so, right? We're a, we're a land a, law, a land of laws, and and certainly in the aftermath of of nine eleven and and subsequent amendments to the Terrorism Act, um, and, and to the CSIS Act and the Immigration Act, uh, absolutely there are legal limitations now on your ability to do that. And it's certainly a criminal offense to go and do that. Um, and it's not just terrorism; it's a criminal offense to go to exploit minors in in a world country as well, or in a developing country as well. Um, so yes, certainly we accept limitations on the movement of people, but at the same time, even in the case of a foreign fighter, I would I would be of the position that Canadian citizen, we need to bring that person back. If they're facing justice in Canada, then they can face justice in Canada, but we shouldn't be offloading our problems and, and saying, well, this person's left. Um, I'm not sure that that's what's certainly not the way the law works, and I'm personally not sure that that's the way we want to run our democracy. I think there, there you and I will disagree because I've gone on record of saying that uh, from my perspective, I think that given that the crimes, at least some of the crimes that were committed by the so-called foreign fighters were in other countries, they should have the first kick of the can to use the phrase, if you've killed somebody in Iraq or Syria, then, you know, I think Iraqis and the Syrians have a right to try you based on their laws. The problem we're having, of course, is that many of those countries have the death penalty for those types. And, and we've seen very uh, non-professional, you know, very 
very quick trials in which people aren't allowed to present evidence to, you know, for or against their cases. But I mean, that, that's certainly another point. Getting back to your book, though, what, what, is it, what is it like to write a book of fiction, given the fact you have worked in the national security sphere for, for two decades now? What are some of the things that made it easier in some ways? And maybe the, the, the other side of that coin made it more of a challenge to write this book? Totality of my life experience made it easy to write the book. As, as you said in the introduction, I, uh, you know, I, I was in the infantry reserve, so I, I, I know the tactical pointy end of the military a little bit. Um, I have a master's degree in, in military strategic studies, so I understand the theory of, of warfighting, and, and in particular nuclear warfighting. But then, you know, having worked for the last 20 years in government, I, I think I understand how, how events, just through passively reading for the last 20 years, how events like this would unfold. And I certainly knew as I was writing the book, what types of questions to ask, what types of, of Russian and Chinese fighter jets would be squaring off against each other over the steps, over the Mongolian steps, for example. Um, and I think that that made it easier for me. On the flip side, I had to be very careful that I wasn't betraying anything that I had learned in the course of my work uh, and, or to, um, to reveal anything that had been classified in any nature. Uh, so if you look in that book, there's the, the word intelligence never shows up in that book or anything like that. Um, everything I've found on that book is available on the internet, much like Tom Clancy when he wrote um, The Hunt for Red October back in the 80s. By no means I'm equating myself to him. He did a lot of legwork to get everything right. Let me sort of push that a little bit because I, I too, I mean, obviously I've written extensively on terrorism. I make no secret of the fact I used to work for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Obviously, a lot of what I understand about terrorism as a phenomenon was in fact derived from my work at CSIS. I'm not an academic. I don't look at, at terrorism from an academic perspective. In your mind, and I, I know we have to treat tread very carefully on, in, in this line, a line of work. Um, for the record, I, I have given my manuscripts to CSIS before publication and never had anything taken out. So I must be doing something right. What is that sort of, I don't know, battle between you know, we are who we are in many ways because of the types of work that we have done, the organizations for whom we worked, the individuals alongside uh, whom we worked. What is that tension like to try to do something that's credible, um, albeit a piece of fiction in your case, a piece of nonfiction in my case, without crossing that line about actually giving out details that are not available on the public record? And I think we both we both hew to that line. But the way we interpret things and the way that we present them is certainly informed by where we used to work. How, how did you sort of manage that kind of tension? Well, I think the, on the first part of that question is, is all federal departments have a departmental security officer and anybody who's going to be uh, publishing anything that, that could potentially touch upon their, their work environment uh, should be running their, their work through that DSO, the departmental security officer. And I certainly reached out to our officer and, and advised them of what I was doing and what I was writing. And I had an interview with them and, and they said, yeah, we have no problems with what you're saying. Uh, so in that sense, I, I feel quite comfortable with that. But with regards to how things are, are informed, uh, as I said, there's not a thing in that book that you can't find on Google. Um, how I came to know that, I think it would take a smarter person than me to know whether I knew that because these are the books that I read or I heard it at work or I heard it in the elevator. Um, but I do know that uh, any of the facts, and although it is a novel, it's it's very factually based. If, if I'm talking about a place, uh, you can Google Earth it and that place is there. And I'm saying this place is good tank country, then you can, you can see, yeah, it's good tank country. 
Um, that's how I kept myself honest. And, and any fact in there, I spent hours to make sure it was an accurate thing that I could find on the internet. Well, kudos to you. I remember having a conversation with somebody, again, going back to our, this, this is sort of nostalgia day for me, going back to my, my start at CSA way back in the early 1980s. And I remember working along so, alongside someone who was slightly more of a veteran than I was. And he would tell me he would never say anything when he went out with friends because he couldn't remember where he learned it from. And he was afraid that he would betray some kind of a deep, you know, deep uh, secret or something like that. And I thought, wow, uh, the fact that you work for an organization, which, by the way, we never we didn't avow it back then. It was National Defense. It wasn't CSE has precluded you from actually talking to anybody in life. And I, I find that to be kind of, kind of unfortunate. But it sounds to me that, you know, obviously you, you've done your research. Um, you, you alluded to that. And that's so that when you look at the things that are in your book, it would come across as as a very realistic depiction of this fictional, albeit plausible, future. So what kind of advice would you give to anybody else that wanted to write something in, the, in an analogous vein to what you've done? Uh, like I said, I think you would, you know, my first step would always be to work with my departmental security officer to make sure that they're on board. Then the flip side would be to, to you know, informed or not by your work, look in the right places for the information. We spoke earlier uh, in this conversation about the Canadians' convenience and the Israeli-Lebanon war. Pretty much everything I've said to you today came from a May 2007 report uh, to the Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and International Trade. You just Google that, find it. It talks openly about the fact that uh, multi-agencies were deployed to Lebanon. It, it mentions in this public report that, that CSIS was there, that the Department of National Defense was there, that Transport Canada was there. Um, so whatever I think I thought I knew from work, I can read this and be confident that I can say it. Most agencies now have public reports, and, and I've always been the opinion that if it's published in the public report, then I can say it over a beer with my friends. That's a really good point. I think that there is a lot of information out there that much more so than I think in the early days where we were really encouraged very strongly not to say anything at all. And you're absolutely right. There are these public reports that are available. They're available to all Canadians. Maybe some of them are, are a little harder to find because they're not distributed as openly as other things, but they are out there if you with some simple Google searches. So I have to ask you this, Sean, now uh, in the wake of this first novel that you've published. And by the way, what year was it published in? It was published in March of this year. Okay, so it's, it's brand spanking new. So again, congratulations. Uh, the question I have to ask is, is there a, another one in the offing? Or would you rather not answer that question in order to build up the excitement and the expectation? No, I've got a couple of ideas kicking around for idea uh, for potential on novels. Uh, one is is a book that I've tentatively in my mind called Echo Wars, and that would be about secondary conflicts that are spun out of a primary conflict and how that would impact upon people. And, and if you were to read my book, you would see throughout it, I have several Echo Wars around the world. There's uh, what I, in, in the book, I refer to the Famine Wars in the Horn of Africa, I allude to significant instability in the Caribbean Basin, as well as the Malaysian Civil War. I think I'd like, I'd like to kind of unpack that a little bit uh, and again, tie it to history or have history inform it. But at the same time, in an era of which I think this book is really based strongly on Canadian values. And, and the one thing about this book is unabashedly Canadian. It, it's, you know, there's references to Americans and, and British and Australians. But, um, and I'd had people say, you know, if you wrote this from an American's perspective, you'd sell more. And I'm like, well, have a job. I'm telling a story right now. That's great. I, as a fellow Canadian, as a friend, uh, I, I can't praise you enough for doing this. It's nice to have a Canadian voice out there. And you know as well as I do, Sean, that 
yeah, even in the the security and intelligence world, national security world, uh, we're we're a bit player uh, when it comes, uh, you know, to some of our allies like the Americans and and like the Brits. But I've always maintained that we do well better than than punch above our weight in terms of our contributions to the community. So the fact that you've been able to do this, and, and clearly based on our conversation today, it comes across crystal clear that you've married your interest in history, your interest in the military, and your interest in security intelligence. So uh, again, congratulations on the publication of the book. I'm actually going to go out and buy it, and I expect you to sign it when this whole bloody COVID thing uh, ends <laughs> so I can have my own personalized copy. And uh, thanks for being on the podcast. That would be great. If you want to buy it, it's available on Amazon. That would be your best place. And it's uh, there's an ebook version and a print version as well. I'm going to put links to the uh, where you can get it on when I publish the podcast. But I just want to thank you once again, Sean, for taking the time to join me on the podcast. Great. Thanks so much, Phil. So that was my conversation with Sean McWaugh, the author of Eastern Horizons. You'll see the links to it in on my webpage. I'd love to know what you think of my conversation. Have you written a book of fiction if you work in the security intelligence world? And what kind of challenges did you face? If you've had a chance to read Sean's book, what do you think of it? Did you do a good job of it? You can reach me at any time on email at borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you'd like to hear more things like this, podcasts and, and Today in Terrorism and all the material that I produce on my website, simply go to www.borealisrisk.com, hit the subscribe button, fill in your e- email information, and you'll get a daily di- digest to your email box every morning without fail. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>